Amen. Well, good morning. We had a big announcement to make this week, but providentially we have about five families who are away from us and out this week, so we will be uh, delaying that big announcement for the women's ministry till next week. Well, open your Bibles with me to the Psalter this morning, to the book of Psalms. We will be in Psalm 46. Many thanks, of course, always to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship as we join in praise to our triumphant King. King and to our risen Savior. As we begin Holy Week, we'll be taking a two-week break from our series in Mark as we join with Christians around the world, the corporate body of Christ, to commemorate in our hearts and to ponder afresh the amazing events of this week, indeed of Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. And as we approach Monday, Thursday, celebrating the Last Supper and the washing of the disciples' feet, our Lord's crucifixion on Good Friday, and gloriously culminating next week as we meet again for Easter Sunday. While we'll be in the Psalter this morning, it feels like something is missing without opening our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to do that very briefly. Looking forward to Mark 11. Turn there if you'd like. You're getting a sneak peek a, a few months down the road here. We see Mark, and indeed all the Gospels, record what is known as the triumphal entry. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday today. If you would look, look with me briefly at Mark 11. I'll read verses 7 through 10. Listen to this scene, but I'd like us to do something else as well while we're reading. I want us to see this scene in our mind's eye. I want you to visualize the faces of those around Jesus. I want you to have a sense of what you think the atmosphere was like on this triumphal entry. And we'll see why in a moment. Listen to Mark's account and visualize. Beginning with verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road and others spread leafy branches having cut them from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What a scene! Now, what did you see? The faces, the people, what was their expression? Was this a festive and a a jubilant scene in your mind? Was it smiling people and joyful exuberance? I'm willing to bet that it was. And we largely have religious tradition to thank for that. But the truth of this scene that we would celebrate on Palm Sunday revolves around an often misunderstood word. Hosanna. Hosanna. When our ears hear the word Hosanna, we visualize joyful jubilation. We hear an expression of praise. And in fact, if you were to look up the word in the Bible dictionary, it even calls it an expression of praise. But it's only since the liturgical church began using that word as an expression of praise. And the Hollywood movies made the scene that took their cue from that liturgical usage that we came to understand Hosanna in such a way. However, as good expository listeners of Harrison Hills, we know that if the original audience would not have understood something the way we understand it, that our understanding is incorrect. We know that it does not matter how we as in 21st century America understand it. What matters is what did the author intend to say and how did the original audience understand it? So our question today, would this liturgical usage of the word Hosanna that the people shouted to Jesus on Palm Sunday been a word of joyful praise to a first century Jew? Well, I think you can guess the answer. It's no. Our English word, Hosanna, comes from the Hebrew phrase, Hushana. And this is such a unique word that is only found in one other place in all of Scripture. 
which is wonderful because it takes out any guesswork or any range of interpretation. Only one place in Scripture. And that's so very helpful for us. When the people are crying out to Jesus, Hushana, we can know exactly what they intended to mean. We can know what's in their minds as they cry out. That word is only found in Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, do save. We beseech thee, O Lord. We beseech thee. Save us, Lord. Hosanna is a word of pleading desperation. This is a cry from the psalmist to God for help. This is akin to somebody falling into the water without knowing how to swim and they, and they come up gasping and flailing. Help me, save me, Hosanna. So while we see waving and smiling and cheering people in our mind's eye, that's not the scene. They were crying out to be saved. Please save us. Please deliver us. We beg you. We beseech you. We're desperate. That's the truth of our scene. This was a cry to be rescued. This was a cry for refuge, a pleading for safety. They believed that Messiah was indeed among them, and they were right. They had his identity correct in a sense, but they had his purpose all wrong. Just like the disciples, they looked for a military Messiah and a political Messiah, but that was not to be. No, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day took place on the 10th day of Nisan. The 10th day of Nisan. And John 12:1 refers to the day before the triumphal entry as, as being six days before the Passover. And this was the day on which the Israelites were commanded to take a lamb into their household for the Passover. They were looking for a conquering king. And instead of that lamb, Jesus came into the very walls of their home, into the very walls of Jerusalem, not as a conquering king, but as the Passover lamb. And on this narrow road in Jerusalem, the people cried out to Jesus for refuge, for help, for deliverance, for safety. They invoked Hushana, Psalm 118. But oh, that this crowd would have considered the whole Psalter. All of the Psalms. And they would have known not only that a lowly suffering servant was coming and that he would be crucified, but that God was already their refuge and strength. They would have already known that he had promised to be their very present help in a time of trouble. They would have known not to fear any man, Roman or otherwise. Though the entire earth should quake around them, they would have known from the psalmist that there was a river flowing whose streams make glad the city of God, and no Roman army can thwart its cleansing, renewing, and refreshing stream. They need not cry out for desperate deliverance. God has already declared in that same Psalter that he is in the midst of them. God's people and the raging nations have been commanded to be still and to know that he is God. The Jews in the triumphal entry made Psalm 118, Hushana, their plea for help. But had they considered another psalm, that is our text this morning, perhaps that cry would have been very different that day. Perhaps we would have found a people at peace, knowing that the Lord of hosts was with them, unmoved by any army of man or political occupation, and so the promises are to us this morning. Well, if you're not already there, please turn in your scriptures to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 this morning. 493 years ago, in 1527, most are familiar with the horrific wave of death that was sweeping across the continent of Europe, being ushered in by a flea and rodent-borne illness known as the bubonic plague. This was also known as the Black Death. 
Of course, we dealt with our own pandemic of sorts, but the bubonic plague, the Black Death, killed between one-third to a full one-half of the entire population of Europe. And as frightening as the deadliness of this plague was, most say that it was actually the plague's unpredictability that made it most fearful. You see, the plague could sweep into a village overnight, and its first victims would fall within 24 hours. It would spread by the briefest touch. Well, 10 years prior to this bubonic plague sweeping across Europe, and more specifically through Saxony, a former Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther was nailing his 95 grievances against Rome to a church door in Wittenberg, sparking, of course, in part, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And here, 10 years later, into that Reformation, this black death is descending upon Wittenberg where Luther and his family lived. And Luther now has a young son, one-year-old, and his wife, Katharina, was pregnant with their daughter, Elizabeth. Of course, knowing that the plague was descending upon Wittenberg, the best way to avoid this killer was to flee the area. And in fact, it was often complete anarchy and chaos in villages when it was even rumored that the plague was coming. Well, now with the Black Death about to descend upon Wittenberg, the head of the college where Luther lectured wisely urged his professors to leave. But Luther refused. He reasoned that it was well and fine if most would flee, but if all the clergy fled, who's going to care for those who remained? And so Luther, with the support of his very pregnant wife and with a one-year-old child to care for, they opened their home as a hospital as a hospital to the infected and the dying, as the Black Death descended on and struck Wittenberg on August 2nd, 1527. This was a horrible time for the Luthers. It was horrific. Friends, families, neighbors died in their home. They nearly lost their one-year-old to the plague. He miraculously recovered. But sadly, their daughter Elizabeth died only eight months after she was born likely due to Katerina being so weak in her system from battling the plague while she was pregnant. Not only did Martin Luther have to witness the death and despair of the plague in his own home, not on TV, not on the news, but he would daily receive reports and letters of German Protestants that were being killed or exiled for following his teachings. And amidst all of this, soldiers under Charles V were laying siege to Rome as well, which carried massive implications for all of Germany. Political unrest, social upheaval, natural disasters, and spiritual chaos surrounded the Luthers on every front. It no doubt felt like the world was burning down around them. And it was during this time of unrelenting chaos, crisis, and spiritual confusion that Martin Luther picked up his quill. And at the top of a piece of paper, he wrote, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God. What became the anthem hymn of the Reformation was written in the bowels of a world that was being shook and crumbled on every conceivable foundation. What some may not know is that Psalm 46, our text this morning, was used as the heartbeat for this enduring, sim, for this enduring hymn and has even become known as Luther's Psalm. Indeed, the only certainty that Luther possessed for these 10 years of his life was the truth of God's word, as all other mountains were being tossed into the sea. So with that, let's read this magnificent text, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress Selah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a word this morning. You have recorded for us your promise. Lord, not only your promise to your beloved that would seek refuge in the mighty fortress that is our God, but to the nations that would shake their fists and rage. Lord, this is a word that touches each of us in our life where we are. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would abide with us, that you would attend to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, written at the top of most psalms, we're often told the exact time and sometimes even the exact event that transpired to inspire the writing of that particular psalm. And while we don't have that for Psalm 46, most believe that it was likely written in response to the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem under King Hezekiah. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 8, 18-19 and 2 Chronicles 32. In this reading, the Assyrian king has stormed through Judah. He's demolishing towns and villages. He's terrorizing the entire nation, taking over 200,000 residents, all of their possessions, all of them as prisoners and as bounty. And I imagine despair and confusion reigned as the Lord's hand seemed nowhere to be found as the Assyrians scorched the earth of Judah, completely unchecked. And finally, true crisis arrived for King Hezekiah as 185,000 Assyrian troops surrounded Jerusalem with the intent of killing all in her walls. Unless God supernaturally intervened, utter destruction awaited the inhabitants inside. Yet in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the crisis and the chaos, King Hezekiah prayed, and God answered. And in one night, the angel of the Lord annihilated the Assyrian army, killing all 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. This background, this historical context helps us begin grasping the gravity of this psalm. We begin to see what Martin Luther saw in this incredible song of ascension that cries out for the supremacy of God over all that concerns us and the very intimate help that surrounds his children. This strong fortress of protection and refuge for his children was the music that moved the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm. And it is the music that is to saturate us as well. So with that, let's look closer. Beginning with verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Well, first note, we see two attributes of God on display here. One... He's all-powerful. And two, he's everywhere. For those of you who like your big words, God is both omnipotent and omnipresent. But just how powerful is he? Because our English is no help. It just says that our God has strength in verse 1. But if we look closer, we find that the psalmist is telling us just how strong in the usage of the word God. 
There are many names used for God in Scripture. Many the psalmist could have used or chosen. Of course, the name Yahweh, which we often see in our LSB translation, is the most common name for God in the Psalms, showing God as the active and the self-existent one. They didn't use Yahweh. Or perhaps they could have used El Alam, meaning the everlasting God, highlighting God's loving kindness. Or perhaps El Elyon, emphasizing God's sovereignty over all as the Most High. They could have chosen El Shaddai. But here, in verse 1, they use Elohim, meaning strong, almighty, But it goes much deeper than that. The word for Elohim, for God, is what's known as an intensive or a majestic plural. Meaning he's not just strong, he's very strong. And he's not just mighty, he is exceedingly mighty. It's the same usage in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, exceedingly powerful God, created the heavens and the earth. It is that power that the psalmist wants us to see. These are the goggles that we're to put on as we look at the remainder of this psalm. That no less than the creative power and strength that created the world by the word of his mouth is the one who is our refuge and strength. Notice our text in verse 1. God. God what? God is. He is. Meaning present tense. So expand it out. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that at every moment of every day, the exceedingly mighty God is our refuge. A place of safety. A place that is secure. One commentator describes it as an unassailable fortress and an unconquerable castle. Here we're starting to see what Luther saw, aren't we? God is the mighty fortress. Think, if you will, of of, of a book or a movie scene. Imagine for a moment a beleaguered soldier or a family that's being pursued and they're being chased by enemy hordes. Picture it in your mind. And up ahead, you see the tower. You see the fortress. And they're lowering the drawbridge to receive the ones that are desperately seeking protection. And now with the enemy almost to them, they cross the drawbridge in the moat. And with a loud thud, we sigh with relief as the drawbridge is lifted and the door closes safely behind them. Let me ask you something. In this scene in your mind, this soldier, this family, were they walking or were they running? I bet they were running. They ran to the only place that they could find shelter from the chaos that resigns and reigns just outside of the walls. And once that drawbridge is lifted, saints, there is an impenetrable moat surrounding this fortress, unassailable from the outside. Only the king may order the drawbridge lowered. Nothing touches the inhabitants of that fortress except that which the good king allows. Be encouraged in this, beloved. Trouble will strike the believer. We have God's word on that. But it did not sneak over the moat. And it did not scale the wall. He is our refuge. Yet the good king allows and even sends trials and troubles to his children in pursuit of our higher calling to be daily transformed into the image of Christ. That's why you're here. That's why you've been given life. Notice back in our text, God is our refuge and strength. He is our strength. In the most difficult of circumstances, when the plague would kill Luther's friends and family, when 185,000 troops tell you that you are about to die, whatever the tragedy, whatever the trial, or seeming impossible odds, God is our refuge and strength. And the world would tell you that the hero lies in you. I think I remember a song like that. The strength lies in you. The world tells you in the face of tragedy to be strong. God forbid. No. 
The hero does not lie within us. And I don't want to be strong. I want God. I want Elohim. We need his strength. It's perfected in my weakness. God forbid we should be strong in ourselves and independent. In fact, some of us here this morning are too strong. We're too strong. If we're walking in our own strength, we've missed it. The psalmist says that he is our strength. And that is good, good news. I know myself. I know my weaknesses and my failures. If it were my strength, we can just pack up the show. The self-assured, the headstrong are in fact without hope if they persist. When we were born again, we exchanged our strength for his. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The encouragement continues in verse 1 that God is a very present help in trouble. Don't miss this. Hear the emphasis of the psalmist. He is not just present. He is very present. The psalmist is telling us that in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the situation that just will not resolve, he is never more present than he is right now. Very present. All-powerful, all-present. Soldiers on the battlefield are often used to five-star generals sending down commands from a distant headquarters, right? From far off in the Pentagon. But what if that general was sitting in the Humvee with those troops? What if he was in the tank or sitting in that foxhole? He was with them. What confidence would those troops have with the commander of all military forces right beside them? The psalmist says he is a very present help. And the word for help is beautiful. Ezra. Ezra. Ezra is a help that if it did not come, we would certainly be overrun. There is a desperation in the cry for this kind of help. And while we risk making a big thing out of a small word, the psalmist says he's a very present help in in our trouble. This is an intimacy of help. The psalmist could have said that God is over our trouble, which he is as well. But he says that God is in our trouble. God is in the boat. He's in the foxhole. He's a very present help in. Though the heavens often feel like they're brass, like your prayers are hitting a concrete wall. When the situation or trial continues unabated, the spiritual season is a dry land. God is in that trouble with you, in that pain, in the crisis. He's in the confusion of our times. But notice with me, I don't want us to miss this miracle that's just floating on the top of verse 1 here. Consider with me, saints, the God of the universe who cannot look upon evil, who cannot be in the presence of wickedness, can dwell with us in the boat, in our troubles. How is that possible? We who deserve his wrath because of our sin, who were separated from God by that sin, and yet now he gets in the boat with us, with me. How? Why? What is this mercy? You know, saints, it is only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ and the ministry of reconciliation that we have with God through that sacrifice. Paul tells the church at Corinth, all this is from God. Who though Christ reconciled, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is good news beyond our comprehension. 
Our state, our status before being regenerated by God's sovereign hand was more dire than 185,000 troops about to slay us. We had less hope than the inhabitants of Jerusalem when we were dead in our sins. But for a supernatural act, death was certain for them, and it was certain for us. We know that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Well, that's quite the introduction that the psalmist gives us, isn't it, on who our God is. And we need this kind of introduction. We need to be reminded of his exceeding power. And let me tell you why, saints. Because verses 2 and 3 are about to come upon us. Notice in verse 2. Notice in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, The psalmist carries us along from his introduction and his reminder of who God is by saying, therefore, therefore. Meaning, now if this is true, if verse one is true, then we will not fear. And he's not simply telling us not to fear because I told you so. He's telling us not to fear because our God is the very strong one. He is the exceedingly mighty one. He's Elohim. There is a mighty fortress for our rescue and for our safety. And so he makes a declaration in verse 2. We will not fear. Though the earth should change, some versions say though the earth gives way. There's a tectonic shift that's happening. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, we're talking about an earthquake. Historically, the psalmist had likely witnessed just such an earthquake. You see, the mountain range of Mount Carmel, it ends at cliffs that overhang the sea. And he had likely likely watched in terrific awe as huge chunks of Mount Carmel were shook in an earthquake and were thrown down into the Mediterranean Sea below. And what's so interesting in Scripture, if we look in Jeremiah, if we look in Isaiah, they all represent Mount Carmel as what? has symbols of beauty, of fruitfulness, of prosperity, of happiness, of fulfillment. And what's happening to it? This is now being crumbled and thrown into the sea. These mountains represent to us everything that is stable in our life, everything that is constant and unchanging. You can always count on it being there. That person, that job, that home, that church, that which you know you can count on, shook and thrown into the sea. Imagine living in a a picturesque mountain home and you have this beautiful mountain, that peak, that was perfectly framed in your window. So it's the first thing you see every morning when you wake up. It's always there. Till one day you wake up and you look out the window and it's gone. There's nothing in the window. You can never believe it. Surely your eyes deceive you and yet it's gone. The psalmist is showing us that which we believe to be certain in our life, that it rests on a shadow, just as our life is a vapor. And this is not to cause us to despair or to stop trusting anyone or anything because it's all so temporal. This is meant to reorient and to realign what and who we're placing our trust in. Even that mountain can slip into the heart of the sea and that uncertainty should cause us to cling to our Savior. It's been said that I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds the future. So what exactly happens when a mountain is thrown into the sea? Well, notice in verse 3, verse 3. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Well, water is one of the most destructive elements on earth. And through this earthquake, the water becomes displaced beyond its proper borders, destroying everything around it. So not only is the stability of life gone, 
The mountain being thrown into the sea, only now to displace even more destructive elements into our life with the roaring and foaming of the water flooding the plains and leveling our towns. Saints, if your feet are on dry sand right now, meaning if you're not in a trial, it's only because you've either just left one or you're heading into one. That's a promise of the Christian life. But the person to your right or to your left, one of them is going through a trial right now. Your feet may be dry, but your neighbor may be gasping for air. I wish the psalmist offered some relief at this point of the earth shaking, of the mountain being thrown into the sea. And some of us are shown up to to be up to our neck in roaring, foaming water. What else could possibly? Second part of verse 3. Second part of verse 3. Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Well, what happens in an earthquake? It generates tremendous destructive waves. They're called tsunamis. It causes the water to what? To swell. And those waves come back and they pound and they batter the pieces of mountain that even remain crashing into the open cracks, splitting it and destroying it. Total destruction. Ezra, help, help. Wait, breathe. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. There is a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. Think back to the Assyrians, beloved. Back in the ancient world, if an enemy were to lay siege to your city, they could simply cut off the water supply into your city. Meaning you had a choice. You could either die inside the walls or you could come out and surrender. Flowing into your city you could survive the siege indefinitely. Indefinitely. And King Hezekiah had built just such a tunnel. They are there in Jerusalem to this day. And these tunnels ensured a river with many streams was flowing into and was making glad the city of God. Outside the mighty fortress, the waters foam, The waves crash, the mountains crumble, but there is a river. There is an unending source flowing that the enemy cannot touch with every supply we need to endure. The grace for today is given. The refreshing for the mundane of life is renewed and the inexhaustible thirst for gladness is quenched. But the river of the Lord, but the Lord of the river, and the Lord of the gentle stream that supplies our need, he's also the Lord of the roar, and he's the Lord of the foam, and he's the Lord of the wave, and he's the Lord of the earthquake, and he's the Lord of the tsunami. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to meet God outside of Christ. You don't want to meet the king outside of the walls. There is only one fortress for safety that has been made. Access is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you are outside the fortress this morning, run. Don't walk to Christ. The Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. And many have built their own fortress out of religiosity, out of good works, family expectations, that inside of those walls are pride, lust, greed, idolatry that yields deception and hopelessness. I urge you to abandon that putrid castle. Run, don't walk. But notice that our encouragement from verse 4 of a river whose streams make glad the city of God, that this encouragement continues in verse 5. For those whose joy is in the Lord and strength and refuge is in the Lord. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her 
when morning dawns. God dwells in the midst of her. He dwells here in the holy habitation of the Most High. This is talking about the Temple Mount, where the Temple and the Ark of the Covenant were, where God allowed His presence to rest, to be in the midst of His people. God will help her when morning dawns. The night is passing. The terror that comes with blackness is fleeing from the morning sun. As sure as the sun will rise in the east is our hope and assurance that the help will come. The general tells the troops yet again, he is with them. And while we're caught up in the wonderful splendor of considering all that the Lord has given and that he's provided, the refuge and the strength that it is, it's often helpful in our life to not only be reminded of what God saved us from and out of, but to look back in the world, to see its rebellion and its hatred of God. Because you'll notice as we see, as we move to verse 6, the psalmist is now drawing our gaze back outside the castle, saying, look, look back outside the fortress. Look, verse 6. Look what's happening. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. This immediately took me back to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, their rebels, and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let Russia attack. Let China attack. Let the politicians wallow in their filth and their corruption. There's nothing new under the sun. The psalmist tells us where our trust resides. Back to our text, verse 7. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Meaning the Lord Almighty is with us. He will defend, he will guard his people and his city. And how do we know that he will do this? How do we know that he is the God that will perform this? How can I trust what you're saying, pastor? How can I trust what I'm reading? One word, verse 8. Verse 8. Come. Come, behold. Do you want to see and know that what I speak is true? Do you want to know that you can trust what the Lord has spoken in his word? Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. This command to behold is in all three tenses. Current tense for the author you have 185,000 rotting corpses outside your walls, O Israel. I will protect you. Past tense, Israel. Look what I've done on your behalf and in the name of my glory. Psalm 66. Come and see what, Lord, what the Lord has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. And in future, in the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will also bring desolation. He speaks and the earth melts. Peter later writes that the elements will indeed melt with fervent heat and that the heavens will pass away with a great roar. And whether past, present, or future. Verse 9. Verse 9. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Notice that God is making wars cease. 
Meaning that this is not a harmonious or a voluntary peace. This is a restrained and a forced peace. This is a peace that but God be the enforcer of it, the nations would still rage. And the unending wickedness of men's heart would once again rise up to make war on his people and his city. And God knows this. God knows that the wickedness of man's fallen heart will only rise up again and again. Therefore, he does what? He breaks the bow. And he shatters their spears. And he burns their chariots with fire. And because he has done this, because he has, therefore you will what? Verse 10. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You'll notice quotation marks around this verse, beloved. Meaning that the psalmist is no longer speaking. The Lord speaks. Be still and know that I am God. Now this made me smile for a moment because we often see uh, the verses like be still and know kind of on a, a flowery desk calendar, right? With a, a peaceful scene behind it. Be still and know that I'm God. Yet James Montgomery Boyce writes that this command is not advice to lead a contemplative or a reflective life, however important that may be. To be still means to lay down your arms, surrender, and acknowledge that I am the one and only victorious God. And while the command to be still is certainly comforting to his people, what is it that God is telling us to comfort ourselves with? The comfort here in this psalm is that God will one day bring desolation to the nations and the people that defy God, who wage war on his name and on his people. And while that sounds harsh to some ears, as we watch the world wax more evil, as we watch our children being corrupted and their innocence stolen, as we watch a world that lives in such rabid rebellion that they don't even accept what gender God has assigned to them, we take comfort that justice is being done. Therefore, people of God, cease your worrying. Worry is functional atheism. Knowing in your mind that God exists, yet acting and living as if no one's on the throne. And no one's home. No God exists that cares or will perform his word. Worry is functional atheism. And still this command to be still and know is both a promise and it's an ultimatum. To raging nations and to the wicked of heart, this is a command to surrender. Surrender now because desolation awaits those who would make war against the Lord of hosts. Final verse, verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If we look at verse 7 in our psalm, what do you notice? This is exactly the same. Word for word as verse 11. Meaning, this is important. God says, I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you that I'm with you. And once again, for the second time, verses 7, 11, 7 and 11, how does God name himself? As the God of Jacob. As the God of Jacob. Jacob was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright and he fled like a coward until he met God. And he wrestled with God and was made to surrender. Bearing the mark forever of one who had been touched by his maker. He's the God of Jacob. And that call for surrender has not changed. Past, present, or future. The gospel by its very nature is a call to surrender. At its very core, the message to a rebellious world from the cross to the empty tomb is a call to lay down your arms. Surrender to the God of Jacob, the God of the one who saves, cheats, and liars, who wrestled with God, but surrendered. 
And still the rebellion that filled the hearts of the people in Psalm 46 still fill the hearts of some listening. Those who have quietly chosen the pleasures and the comforts of life over being a slave of Christ. Do you still belong to you? Those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. Those who would backbite or gossip or sow division in the body. Scripture says this is rebellion. If the gospel message that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life, sacrificing himself on a bloody cross and rising again that dead men might live is not sweetness in your ears today. If your heart did not leap for joy within you when you heard those words, it does not matter how long you've occupied a pew or a chair. Repent, surrender, be reconciled to God today. For those that are safely in the fortress of Christ this morning, let us be encouraged. You know, it's said that when a particular trial or challenge would confront Martin Luther, he would often look over to his helper, his attendant, and he would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Such was his confidence in the truths of this psalm that so filled and strengthened this battle-weary heart. And I pray it will do the same for us this morning. Let's pray. Oh God of Jacob, you who are merciful, who dwell in unapproachable light, you have given us a place of shelter today. A place of rest where you dwell with your people. And I thank you that you have wrestled with us. That you have called us to lay down our arms that we might be brought into a safe place of refuge. I pray that we might heed the command this morning to be still to surrender, that the world may see your power and your goodness towards an undeserving people. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would go with us this week, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that you would cause this comfort, this message, this rebuke, this exhortation to go down deep into our hearts and be locked away. All of this we pray in the matchless and very powerful and exceedingly almighty name of Jesus. Amen.